Hello, everybody, and welcome to a Safe Space Radio. I am Ace Boy, and with me at home is Calvin Williams. How's it going, everybody? So what you just heard happened literally 15 minutes ago uh, on my block. There was a peaceful, well-organized protest happening. You could hear it. Uh, I hope my hope is here as well as possible. Because um, I was just holding the, the phone up to the mic. I didn't plug it into a board or anything. But uh, it's so fitting that that happened because what we're talking about today, what we're going to dedicate this entire episode to, is uh, the life of Mr. John Lewis. At the end of last week's episode, as I often do, but I don't always do, I, I asked... Um, I asked both Remick and Calvin, hey, do you feel like you had expressed all that you wanted to express? And Calvin said, I would like to have talked more about Mr. Lewis. I said, let's do a two-parter then. <laughs> uh, I really do appreciate that. Uh, I, was, I was feeling a lot of emotion about his passing, and I just couldn't quite understand why that was. Like... I've always, I've always felt sad when I hear a politician or a leader pass away, but this was something different. This was, this this hit in a different way for me, and I couldn't figure out why until um, after the show and after we had um, said we were going to do a two-parter. It took me a while to figure it out, but it was what I was feeling was fear, like. I felt I, I was actually starting of the it was fear that I was feeling because looking at everything that John Lewis had accomplished just himself in the 80 years of his life everything that he experienced everything that he saw everything that he felt everything that he stood for there's not a whole lot of people like him out there right now and the people that are still around are um, up there in age and won't be around like, you never know how many of them are going to be around 10 years from now and it it hurt a lot knowing that uh, a few things knowing knowing that there's not a lot of people that 
could be able to take up the mantle the way he did. And knowing that the people who truly understand the struggle of civil rights are are passing away faster and faster each day. And so just knowing who he was, what he stood for, why he was who he was and why he was so significant and meaningful and knowing that he's not going to be around to help lead the next generation on in a time that we could use him and people like him now more than ever hurt tremendously. And it just, in that moment, I just felt really scared and saddened. But at the same time, uh, doing my research about John Lewis and uh, <laughs> the things that he was able to accomplish and the things he did to prepare this next generation, it... It made me feel a whole lot better just uh, knowing what was at stake, especially now, and everything that he did on his part to make sure that the next generation could be prepared and could be ready for whatever happens. That, that made me feel a lot better. What kind of things are you afraid of and... Before you answer that, uh, I'm going to just say I get that this person was a protector. Yeah. He he was very much a protector. He was, like, <clears throat> a lot of people look up to John Lewis the way, like, um, like, like, different like native tribes would look up to their elders the ones that held all the knowledge and all the wisdom again because of everything that he lived and experienced and he knew that taking up this cause was not easy but it was something that he truly truly believed in with every fiber of his being literally shed blood for this cause and um, one of the things that I was afraid of is that there may be nobody out there that can take up that mantle like that was like just that feeling of being lost you know like they're a a movement like this need need people to give a direction and give perspective and he was he was one of those people that was able to accomplish that and was not afraid even until his dying day to um make his uh make his uh, voice heard and make his thoughts known about the status, uh, the current status of this country 
and what he felt was a regression and I'm pretty sure a lot of us are inclined to agree with him. Oh yeah, yeah, things have been going backwards. One of the things I was reading about in uh, doing my homework on him was, um, it was kind of interesting, uh, both in his thoughts of George W. Bush and uh, uh, our current president, the rhetoric and the the actions that they took, he felt very reminiscent of um, Governor George Wallace. And for those, yes, and for those who are not aware of uh, who uh, George Wallace was, of who George Wallace is, he was the governor of Alabama and was one of the like most staunch. Um, populist and segregationist governors in this country like he like he was absolutely all in on Jim Crow desegregation like he basically said literally segregation now segregation tomorrow segregation forever yeah he's not the guy I want to be compared with <laughs> not at all <laughs> So when when somebody who has gone through everything that uh, John Lewis has gone through, when somebody like him says, he reminds me of George Wallace, that should have been more than enough pause for people to to like really perk their ears up and, and say to themselves, Maybe we should listen to him. He could be right. So, with his passing, and um, another civil rights leader, uh, C.T. Vivian, passed away on the same day, uh, who was uh, another civil rights leader and um, um, one of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, lieutenants in the uh, in the civil rights movement. Um, those are two people that experienced so much and knew what was at stake and just the fact that they're no longer here I'm just hoping that people can um, people can continue to take up the mantle because at this point it's it's not going to be the work of just one person it's it's a collective effort among all of us and we have to we have to do everything that we can to um, put our fears and our our feelings to the side for a greater cause and so that's that was that was really why uh, representative Lewis's passing was particularly difficult for me and what was interesting like I didn't realize I I had all these feelings mm -hmm. I have a lot of trouble expressing what I'm feeling on a regular basis even just the more simple of emotions but this like I had like I had to dig deep to really 
uncover what I was feeling and and honestly Francis I have you to thank for that um this uh doing the show with you for the past month and between that and seeing everything that's been going on for the la- uh, for a good portion of 2020 it's really made me realize like how important my uh, my thoughts my opinions my feelings all that are and so i i want to say thank you for that well you're 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 very welcome i'm glad that i had something to do with that i uh you're welcome uh so i'm going to open up about something um for many many years i've worked with people that had uh physical and mental disabilities and there was one school that i had worked at and the staff were just so poorly trained and i did everything i could to raise the standards of that place i did have to report someone for neglect at one point i didn't like doing that but i it was you know i'm mandated when i see something like that and um Finally, I made the decision that I've done what I can at this place. I'm going to move on. Mm. And um, there was one student. um, She tried to teach me how to dance. (laughs) She was, she was, she had challenges, but she was bright enough to know what my leaving the school meant. And she took my hand and she said, Frank, I'm scared. You know, so it's when you lose a protector, you're going to be scared. I get it. Yeah, it's it's still it's still hard to think about, you know. But like what what really comforts me is the the little things that he put in place to make sure that the next generation could be prepared for for what's to come um one thing that i found out recently is that he uh he helped pen a a trilogy of graphic novels about his life uh it's called march and um watching uh watching an interview that he did on the daily show um he spoke about the book and what what it meant and basically to kind of abridge what he said it's basically to to uh prepare uh, to prepare those that read it with the the information and the knowledge uh, of the past to be able to um, to I'm sorry uh, to basically be able to um, protest uh, protest and speak up about any injustice that they see and what was what was very interesting about that interview. Like even, even like to his dying to his dying day, like he still believed in the mantle of nonviolence, and 
my what became what has become my favorite term uh the good trouble yes <laughs> <laughs> i knew that i'm sorry i took that from you i'm sorry i took that from you <laughs> oh it's all good but you you knew what i was getting at and i, I appreciate that <laughs> like like getting in getting into trouble for a cause speaking up speaking out ruffling a few feathers ruffling a number of feathers you know <laughs> and so that that book is basically an outline to prepare anyone who's ready to go out and uh make some good trouble he said uh he said I've been arrested 40 times in the 60s, and since I've been in Congress, I've been arrested five times. <laughs> and, uh, and in that interview, he said, hey, I may get arrested uh, even a few more times after this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was ready. He was uh, ready and willing to do whatever he needed to do. If that meant getting arrested, he was ready. In that interview, um, he mentioned that he was in Tennessee for one of the uh, Freedom Rides. He knew full well that he was going to get arrested. And what he decided to do was uh, he didn't have a whole lot of money, but he knew he was going to get arrested. And he was like, if I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to look good. I'm going to look good doing it. So he went to a... Uh, to a uh, used suit store, spent five dollars on a three-piece suit, and went and protested. <laughs> <laughs> and I really admire that because, like, he knew what was what he was in for, and he knew if he was going to do it, he was going to put his all into it. And look, I'm damn good doing it. <laughs> they are they are going to take a mugshot. Yeah. <laughs> the the mugshot that they use for his documentary, John Lewis, Good Trouble, is like he's he's sitting there with the uh, with the uh, the uh, number placard um, right under him with a smile on his face. <laughs> Excellent documentary. I need I. Uh, I need to uh, go out and rent that one. I was trying to see if I could uh, purchase it, but it's um, just looks like it's available for rent right now. And that's definitely um, on my watch list. And uh, uh, the March trilogy, it's it's sold out right now, so I gotta wait till that comes back into stock. Well, that's good news. I mean, I want you to have it, but you know, we like to know that 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 uh, we like we like to know that there's interest. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, that you know his he's being treated in his passing uh, so well that that there is a big deal being made of it, and that he is being treated like the statesman that he is. I find it jarring when I read the comments made by. Pence, as opposed to the comments made by Trump, I'm going to share those with you. Pence, uh, I I don't like the guy, but I like what he said here. 
released a statement on the death of Representative John, Representative John Lewis, calling him a great man whose courage and decades of public service changed America forever. And he wrote he wrote a race list. He called Lewis a friend who, quote, even when we differed, John was always unfailingly kind. And my family and I will never forget the privilege of crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge at his side on the 45th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Karen and I send our prayers and deepest sympathies to his family and friends and all who mourn the passing of this good and great man. May God bless the memory of John Lewis and may his, may his example ever inspire. Well said. Well said. Beautiful. Donald Trump. Saddened to hear the news of civil rights hero John Lewis passing. Millennial, Melania and I send our prayers to he and his family. That was in a tweet. Right. I, <laughs> I saw that tweet, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm at a point where I'm just glad he didn't make any... Uh, and make any uh, snide, uh, snide remarks. Inflammatory but, remarks? Yes. Wow, yeah, he could have gone that way. So, yeah, like, he's, he is Trump. He didn't. And uh, honestly, I'm surprised he didn't. That's, that's where... That, that's, that's his bar. That's the bar. That we, the bar is so low for him. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to this kind of stuff... I, he really I, did the absolute. He's like, he's like. What's the fewest words possible for this? He he did the the absolute bare minimum, and actually for him that was higher than the bare minimum, which which I'm frankly surprised about. So, I mean, I'm grateful that he he decided to for him was the high ground <laughs> for him was the high ground <laughs> like saying something I mean, nice <laughs> i think i think pence got it right i think pence got it right i'm going to give him credit when where it's due absolutely someone who did change america for the better um did you by chance read the statement from joe biden I don't know. Do you have it? Uh, I have it up right now. It was absolutely beautiful. I'm going to preface it because it was, it was pretty long. I'm just going to run through like a couple of uh, notables. Uh, okay. We are made in the image of God, and then there is John Lewis. How could someone in the flesh and blood be so courageous, so full of hope and love in the face of so much hate, violence, and vengeance? Perhaps it was the spirit that found John as a young boy in the Deep South dreaming of preaching the social gospel. The work ethic his sharecropper parents instilled in him and that stayed with him. The convictions of nonviolent civil disobedience he mastered from Dr. King and countless fearless leaders in the movement. Or the abiding connection with the constituents of Georgia's 5th District he loyally served for decades. Or perhaps it was that he was truly a one-of-a-kind moral compass who always knew where to point us and which direction to march. It's rare to meet and befriend our heroes. 
John was that hero for so many people of every race and station, including us. He absorbed the force of human nature's cruelty during the course of his life, and the only thing that could finally stop him was cancer. But he was not bitter. We spoke to him a few days ago for the final time. His voice still commanded respect and his laugh was still full of joy. Instead of answering our concerns for him, he asked about us. He asked us to stay focused on the work left undone to heal this nation. He was himself a man at peace of dignity, grace, and character. It, go, it goes on a little more, but I just wanted to uh, uh, touch upon a, a few of those quotes. Just Okay, let me go back to Trump's quote. John Lewis died. Sad. <laughs> like, he he could he could have just as easily tweeted that, and we would have been like, "Yeah, it's about what we expected." <laughs> <laughs> Things that give me hope are things like what I just saw less than an hour ago. Yes. Less than an hour ago. I saw what I saw was orderly, peaceful, nonviolent demonstration with no police presence and no police needed. I think... I think that, uh, uh, and then I want to get back to, I know that you took extensive notes. I don't want to be talking too much myself. I think that um, I'm, I'm, I just feel very fortunate. I'm not going to go off on Occupy Wall Street again. I did that before. But I am going to say that when I saw those protests and how it was being done, I felt like maybe maybe I've gotten super old and the way I see things that are supposed to be done are gone well what I'm seeing now is an evolution of protest I'm seeing it evolve and, and get and get better than what I have seen in the past because uh, the protests that I have been a part of have always had police either trying to end them or to escort the protesters, but they were always present. Uh, now I'm, I think with no police presence and it maintaining complete peacefulness, I think that's a step forward. Absolutely. Like, there's, there's no need for police presence when there's peaceable assembly. There's no need for it. And this kind of goes towards the uh, go towards the premise of um, self-governing like we have like we have the ability to do it we have the technology and all the tools to be able to organize down to the finest detail and be able to come together for a protest for a common cause and be able to make our voice heard, do what we have to do, and then disperse without the without the need for 
like a a group with uh, impo uh, imposing group with weapons and nightsticks um, hovering over us, waiting for somebody to look like they're about to mess up. You are listening to a safe space radio, formerly Art Star Scene Radio, maybe still kind of, I don't really know, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, I'm not, I know I said I was going to start asking for sponsors when we entered phase four of reopening, but I'm going to hold off on that for a little bit. But I am going to say, folks, if you're, if you are listening to this, if you appreciate free form radio, um, Radio Free Brooklyn has been struggling big time we have no revenue coming in from renting the studio as we had before and uh and we we depend we depend on listeners uh so if you can help us out go to radiofreebrooklyn.com slash support anything you give is a hundred percent tax deductible so you know you're doing something good and you can write it off your taxes and if you think we're doing something good um then, then go and make that donation right now so it registers as having uh, happened during this show because that, that they actually track that stuff. So please do that. That's RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash support. Uh, okay, I know you did a lot of research, so instead of me going over to where I think this should go next, I'm going to ask you. I... I think I just wanted to go over uh, kind of kind of a few things that I I uh, found notable about uh, John Lewis. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be able to uh, uh, go through the remainder of the show with um, what I brought up uh, with uh, what I have, but just just kind of going through his life and the the things that he managed to do in his 80 years and it's I just found it absolutely amazing that he was able to accomplish so much starting from i think starting a, from let's look at his family the challenges yeah, yeah he um he was uh he was born in Troy Alabama and he he was the the third of 10 children and his parents were sharecroppers, and that uh, sharecropping is nothing lucrative by any stretch of the imagination, much less for uh, black people during that time. So it was very hard work for very little money. So his parents being able to support him and his uh, uh, nine other brothers and sisters as sharecroppers, that is admirable within itself. But, uh, one thing I found interesting about, uh, about John Lewis, uh, preaching was kind of a, a staple for him from almost the very beginner. Like, he, he <laughs> Yeah, to please tell us. <laughs> He wanted to be a preacher, like since he could for since he could talk. <laughs> one of <laughs> I saw that uh, one of notes um, when he was five years old, he was preaching to his family's chickens on the farm. 
preach into the chickens at five. <laughs> I can only imagine what those sermons were like. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said he got that they were there were the chickens there they were nodding along, lots of nodding. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, as he grew up, he he didn't have much interaction with uh, with white people. Like he he only his uh, his uh, interactions only began as his family left the farm and went into town, and that's where he started to really experience racism and segregation. But what kind of solidified it for him? was when he took a trip uh when he was 11 with his uncle to uh to Buffalo, New York. And that's really what clicked for <clears throat> what clicked for him about um the the status of segregation and racism. About 4 years later Actually, sorry about that. Um like not long after he began to uh listen to the the speeches and sermons of uh Dr. King on the radio and that that would be the right timeline cuz uh 4 years after he was 11 he would have been about 15 yeah that yeah. that timeline works 1955 i believe it was that he first heard Dr. King yes yes yeah and he followed the uh Montgomery uh Montgomery bus boycott and and at the age of 18 was when he got to meet Dr. King for the first time um I want to want to kind of move on to his uh his work with the uh the SNCC for a bit Sorry, I got a whole bunch of tabs open. I wanted to make sure I had everything. <laughs> so, um, in like during his time at the during his time at uh, Fisk, as he went to he went to the American Baptist Theological Seminary first, and was orna ordained as a Baptist minister. So that that really that really kind of gives you an idea of like where his like his uh demeanor his speech really really comes from like the the commanding in his voice like he had one of those voices where it, when he spoke or and he could just like read off the yellow pages you would listen <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> So it was during his time at Fisk when he decided um, decided to dedicate um, his time in uh, civil rights uh, by organizing sit-ins and uh, other different activities um, as a part of the Nashville student movement. It was around that time where he uh, expressed the need to engage in Good trouble, necessary trouble, <laughs> and 
um, like we said, like that was something that he that he lived by to the very end. One of the great things about the way this whole movement was uh, was put together, and I've said it before, but it bears saying again, is that uh, this protest they they took one issue at a time. I mean, I wouldn't say that. There, there was a lot going on, but they identified a problem and they went in uh, with a solution. Problem: um, black and white people cannot eat together in this establishment. Solution: We go in there nonviolently and we sit at these counters. We sit at these counters and, and 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 that in itself is a statement. People attack us, we don't fight back. That in itself is a statement. And what was the what what happened is that that's not longer legal. <laughs> you can't discriminate on the basis of race. That was the eventual outcome. That was the that was the desired outcome. Right. It was it was it was just a very simple gesture, but its effectiveness cannot be overstated. So, right. and it is jarring. It is jarring when you see footage of somebody simply sitting and people throwing stuff at them, people attacking them, tearing them from their seats sometimes beating them up people who just sat down it is jarring to witness something like that whereas you know if you if you come in you know i'm just going to leave it at that cuz we only have 20 minutes left this shit is going fast oh wow oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> and i know that you had a lot that you wanted to get to the man had a lot of life he did a lot you yes. did a lot. We have gotten to one of my notes. <laughs> so, um, as part of the uh, the SNCC Student National Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, him along with uh, so many other uh, so many other people from various universities, uh, part of my notes I found interesting. Um, him along uh, along with uh, a very interesting name, Marion Barry. <laughs> Get the fuck out! <laughs> <laughs> Cracky? No, I didn't say that. Smoke Crack got his job back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can. We can, I really shouldn't have said that. I really shouldn't. You know, we can say we can say the a, guy did a lot of things, and the first thing I say is cracky. Unfortunately, that's out of all the things that he's done, that's unfortunate. His uh, not ne not necessarily a claim to fame, but a blight to fame. But yeah, it can it it, it undercuts everything else that he, uh, all the great work that he's done. It, which is absolutely admirable. I'd, I had no idea who was part of the uh, SNCC. I didn't either. So I just knew about the crack. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to be fair, so do mostly everybody else that hears the name Mary Barry. <laughs> but moving on. Um, among other notable names, uh, Julian Bond, Stokely Carmichael. Um, now, Stokely, he succeeded... 
he succeeded Representative Lewis as the chair. Yes. And they they had different ideological viewpoints, and I think that that it was that that succession that led him away from from that. I could be wrong. I believe that like that was around like around the time where he decided to um, break away from that mindset. Actually, it was around 1964 um, during the uh, National Democratic Convention. That convention decided that they didn't want to uh, recognize the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that he was a part of um, as uh, state delegates. And after that, um, from there, he he moved on and developed uh, different uh, um, black political organizations, which is uh, like such as the Loudest County Freedom Organization, which is something I've only recently heard of. And uh, at some point, the Black Panther Party. So that's so that was the uh, that was how that divide happened. But uh, but uh, going back to going back to the uh, SNCC, um, nineteen sixty one. That was when the the Freedom Rides began, and Lewis was one of the thirteen originals. And we we kind of know how those freedom rides went. Say safe to say they they were not welcome with uh, open arms by any stretch of the imagination. They they were beaten, arrested, had the bus lit on fire, just. All manner of, all manner of just atro- absolute atrocities, hatred, but, and bigotry thrown at them. Yes, and violence. Kind of goes without saying, <laughs> but but what was interesting, according to my notes, um, Lewis was the first of the Freedom Riders to uh, be assaulted um, during an incident in Rock Hill, South Carolina, he tried to enter a whites-only waiting room, and two white men attacked him, um, injuring his face and his ribs. But, two weeks later, he came back and (laughs) enjoyed a freedom ride uh, that went down to Jackson, Mississippi. You know, just, just, just just the bravery. Just the fucking bravery. You know, it, 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 it's there's so much going on with this person. The the intelligence, the drive, and the bravery. Yeah. Yes. And that's one of that's one of the things that that like kind of makes me nervous about the future. Like, is there anybody out there that has the 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 fortitude in many aspects that John Lewis had? Like he he got like he got beat up really bad in this incident and he came back a couple of weeks later back to work 
Mm-hmm. So, um, moving forward, 1963, um, uh, chairman of the uh, SNCC, Charles Drew, stepped down, and Lewis got elected to take over. <clears throat> Excuse me. And during that time, he was able to excuse me, was able to um, establish the freedom schools, which were, excuse me, which were um, uh, small temporary um, alternative schools for African-Americans in the South. Um, The most, uh, the most notable one was in uh, Mississippi during the uh, summer of 64. But, uh, uh, moving forward, <clears throat> excuse me. He organized many voter registration efforts there uh, in Selma in 1965, which gave a number of African Americans the right to vote. But he described it as too little, too late. Yeah, I want to speak on that for a minute. Um, the, the, it's it's as white people have been doing everything they can to stop black people from voting for so long, and it hasn't stopped. Um, and I'm going to give you an example that I heard in the in the documentary. So it's like, okay, you can vote, but you have to take this uh, literacy literacy test, or you have to answer these questions. One of the questions was, how many bubbles are in a bar of soap? So they're asked, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's it's like <clears throat> you can't answer the question, so you can't vote. And and these these were not being applied to to white people. And and what we're seeing today, and what what uh, Representative Lewis was concerned with, was this was a, a change in some sort of voting law, which uh, which increased dramatically voter suppression that we're dealing with today. Yeah, there's there's so many examples of voter suppression all over this country. And I have a perfect example from a couple of years ago here in New York. Um, do you remember when, um, when I think it was, was it New York City or New York State, um, decided to uh, do a mass voter purge from the records? I don't. Okay, so this was maybe about two or three years ago. There was a massive voter purge from the, uh, it was either the city city or state records. I forget what the impetus was for the purge. Um, a lot of it was due to inactivity from the voters that were purged, but that was absolute crap because I have a number of friends that were affected by that voter purge. They went to go to uh, vote during one of the primaries and their names were not were not on the roster. And these were active voters, mind you. Active. Voted basically in every previous election of the past eight to ten years. Nay no record of them in the roster. So that ra that raised a huge commotion 
a few years ago. Thankfully, they righted that wrong quickly and okay. put all those name put all the names back on the roster. But that just goes to show you the 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 foolishness doesn't stop and it doesn't matter where it is. Yeah, if you are someone like myself living in a neighborhood like mine, you go to the poll with with your mom. <laughs> uh, you might have to wait a little bit, if at all. You vote, and then you go home. Now, imagine, if you will, you're in a place where there is one polling site to serve thousands of people, and you're letting, waiting online for six, eight hours, or you're expected to wait online for six to eight hours. That's how long it's going to take you to vote. And... Some people don't have the time for that. Some people don't have the energy for that. And they'll just, they'll give up and go home. And, and that, those neighborhoods are not this neighborhood. Those neighborhoods are predominantly uh, uh, people of lower incomes and people of color. And, and that's, that's ridiculous. It, it, my voting experience shouldn't be any different from anybody else's. Our voting experiences... Right. Have to be equal. They have to be. Or it's. I mean, what? Anyway, I don't know. I don't think I have to <laughs> go any further on that one. It just seems obvious. Agreed. But um, yeah, we're running low on time here, so I'm just gonna skip over. This a uh, gloss over a few things. Uh, 1970, he became uh, John Lewis became the director of the Voter Education Project. Um, and he was director until 1977. And during uh, in that time, the Voter Education Pro Project added close to 4 million minority voters to uh, uh, various state rosters. Which is wow. absolutely, absolutely wow. mind-blowing if you think about that. Yeah. But he he left quite a mark on the uh, voter education project. They, he expanded their mission and expanded their reach uh, by uh, running uh, voter mobilization tours to be able to uh, help people uh, register to vote. Absolutely, it seems like when you when you read it, it seems like such a small thing before you realize four million people. That's a lot of damn people. Like you, like there's organizations that have been able to do less in more time in a longer period of time. So, incredibly admirable. Um, yeah, if you do that one thing in your life, you're fucking awesome. And that was just like that was what that was that was his 1974 or something. What did you say? Uh, from from 1970 to 1977. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was how we did the seventies. So, so let's see. Um, Nineteen eighty-one. This is where, actually, actually before nineteen eighty-one, um, Lewis actually tried to run for the uh, Georgia fifth congressional seat in nineteen seventy-seven. He um, he only. Uh, he was only able to get uh, twenty nine percent of the vote. Uh, uh, forty nine, twenty nine percent of the vote 
um, during the open primary and during the election, um, uh, Weiss Fowler defeated him 62 to 38 percent. But in 1981, he ran for a seat in the Atlantic City, Atlanta City Council, which he won with 69 percent of the vote. And he served on Atlanta City Council until 1986. So. Moving to 1986, he decided to run for the uh, 5th Congressional District seat again when Fowler um, gave up the seat to run for Senate. Now, what was interesting, um, he was going up against uh, Julian Bond, who in the primary made it to like got 47% of the vote, which was three points shy of like winning outright Lewis finished with 35% but in the runoff uh, Lewis managed to pull off an upset by beating Bond 52% to 48% and that November he took the seat uh, winning against uh, Republican Portia Scott 75% to 25% from there he was reelected 60 16 more times And there was only one point in time that his, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he won with less than 70% of the vote. And that was in 1994, where he won against Republican Dale Dixon by a margin of 69% to 31%. What he did outside of the system was incredible. And then what he did as uh, as a as a representative was equally incredible the 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 things that he introduced the things that that uh i got a list but we only have four minutes <laughs> um uh let's see one thing uh one thing that i want to note um in 1988 he introduced a bill to create a, na a National African American Museum in Washington, and session after session after session for 15 years, it kept getting rejected. <clears throat> Excuse me. But in 2003, uh, President uh, George W. Bush actually signed the. <clears throat> um, was able to sign the bill after it gained bipartisan support and the Smithsonian uh, took on the mantle to the establish the location and 2016 we now have the National Museum of African American History and Culture so we have him to thank for that uh, there's so much more we can talk about but uh, one one cool thing that I wanted to uh, talk about real quick, um, his graphic novel, the, the March Trilogy, in 2015, 2016, and 2017 to, to um, endorse the book. He went to uh, San Diego Comic-Con, which is by far one of the largest pop culture conventions in this country. And dressed up as a younger version of himself <laughs> trench coat same backpack a replica of his backpack 
including all the things that he had in his backpack. He cosplayed himself. He cosplayed as himself. <laughs> Look at the pictures. It's absolutely incredible, and I love it. <laughs> you know, I, I this is the first time I've ever done this. I uh, spent an entire show, uh, a little bit of the last week's, and an entire show this week um, on, on remembrances of, of one person. Uh, but I'm sh- I'm so glad we did this. I'm so glad we did Same. this. And Same and here. I knew that there would be no shortage of material. Uh, for, you know, we we got up to what 1988. Yep, 1988. <laughs> of his accomplishments. <laughs> and there's so much more that happened after that. Uh, and so for my part, I am going to say that 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 I I am I I am very saddened over this loss. I feel also very blessed that. I have been alive at the same time as him, and now I want to say that I understand the fear. That's not an emotion I expected to come up in any of us, but I get it, and I'm sorry. It um, all that really means is that we we have to step things up ourselves. We have it's it's on us to continue the mantle and continue to work that Representative Lewis started, and we. As much fear as we're feeling right now, we we can't let it take us over, and we just have to do whatever we can. And I have so much to thank Representative Lewis for. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you, Francis. I, I really appreciate this. 